Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And the truth. How important is the truth? They say the truth shall make you free. And sometimes uh, the truth is a casualty of policy, as we all know. In the military, it must be assumed that what goes on is that people follow orders. There's a strict system of command and control. And as with any military operation, secrecy is an essential component. And the truth eh, sometimes falls by the wayside. So at what point does one become a whistleblower, a truth teller? It's a very serious step uh, that is taken, one that can lead to significant unpleasant consequences. One's life and freedom may become at risk as a result of blowing the whistle on people and bureaucracies which enjoy great power. Well, our guest on the first part of the show today is Peter Van Buren. He knows whereof he speaks. His op-ed is called, When It's Time to Blow the Whistle. Uh, It was published on uh, February 18th on the Sunday New York Times. Peter, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure, Bert. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you. Peter Van Buren is a former United States Foreign Service employee who wrote the books Ghosts of Tom Joad, a story of the 99%, and We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People. He is a 24-year veteran of the uh, State Department. He spent a year in Iraq following his book We Meant Well, uh, uh, highly critical of the provincial reconstruction teams in Iraq, the Department of State began proceedings against him through the efforts of the Government Accountability Project and the ACLU, two great organizations. Van Buren uh, instead uh, retired from the State Department with his full benefits of service. Sounds like a good (laughs) decision. Since leaving the government, Peter Van Buren's commentary has been featured in the New York Times, Reuters, Salon, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post, The Nation, Tom Dispatch, on and on and on. Uh, he has appeared on the BBC World Service, uh, All Things Considered, and Fresh Air, Current TV, HuffPo Live, ITV, Britain's Channel 4 Viewpoint, uh, CCTV, Voice of America, and more. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Peter Van Buren. In recent days, President Trump, and I still can't get used to saying that phrase, has been quite, <laughs> I mean, really, has been quite vociferous against leakers. He says classified leaks are devastating America. Leakers are criminals, and he intends to prosecute. Trump has publicly bashed the FBI for not catching the criminal leakers. 
And during the campaign, uh, it was interesting. He, he routinely applauded WikiLeaks for its role in disseminating the contents of stolen internal com- uh, communications. But now it's a little bit different. Anything he doesn't like, he insists, is fake news. The truth is not what he wants, for sure. And what I've seen so far in this tumultuous presidency is that if leaks actually reveal crimes, if telling the truth raises questions about policy, uh, to the president daring to reveal the truth is what must be criminally prosecuted. Traditionally, though, certainly not always, whistleblowers have been seen by at least a large minority of Americans as, as heroes. Peter Van Buren, do you think, is Trump getting traction with the public now with his framing it this way? What, what, what do you think? Are we still, do we still see whistleblowers as kind of heroic patriots? You know, I, I wish more Americans would see whistleblowers as heroic patriots, but I, I'll question how broadly that, that sense and support does exist. Um, unfortunately, two of the most prominent and important whistleblowers in recent history, uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, who revealed uh, the State Department cables and the war crimes in Iraq, and, of course, Edward Snowden, yes. who revealed that the uh, National Security Agency is spying on literally everyone across the globe. Both of those people were called traitors. Yes. Uh, both of them were told that they have blood on their hands uh, by the government, mm. and, unfortunately, far too many Americans are willing to believe those things Plus the tired tropes of, well, you know, you have to police justice and why didn't you go through channels and what have you. I suspect that our opinion of whistleblowers tends to change, unfortunately tends to change based on the content of what they are revealing and the person or government or institution that they are affecting. Well, but isn't that actually kind of important? I mean, nobody uh, wants... uh, leakers to put people in danger, CIA operatives in the field in danger of their sure. lives. What, what about that aspect of it? And of course, very, very, very few instances have ever been even suggested that lives have been in, in danger. Um, it's oftentimes simply a pretty cheap and easy way to try to discredit someone. Right. If you look back at, at Chelsea Manning, all of the things that uh, she released were historic. There was nothing that was forward-looking in the sense of, hey, a month from now we're going to do this, uh, bad guys, you know, be ready, things like that. Uh, the same with Edward Snowden. He was very careful not to release names of individuals that were involved in in these nefarious activities, but rather focus on the system itself. Um, I do want at some point to to sort of draw some distinctions between leaks and and whistleblowing. Um, And on on the leaking side between, quote, unofficial leaks and leaks of conscience and leaks of gossip, because these parsing out of the different ways and motivations behind what people are doing, I think will clarify some of these questions of, of, of right and wrong, um, and perhaps give us some sense of at what point someone is potentially committing a, a crime, and in which point they are, in fact, helping save democracy. Yes. Well, please, by all means, go right ahead and talk. I mean, that's what we're trying to talk about here. When is it time to blow the whistle? When is it appropriate? 
Well, the first thing I, I want to do is, is draw a big, thick line between leaking and blowing the whistle. And, of course, semantics are fun, and lawyers get paid to do this. But right. in, in the definition that, that we're going to work with here, um, I, I'd like to say that whistleblowers are people who are willing to, to go public um, with the information they have, um, and willing then to stake their own name and reputation and, in fact, uh, freedom quite clearly on the idea that what they are doing is an act of conscience and important enough that they can, in fact, uh, put those things at risk uh, to accomplish something bigger and more important than themselves. Um, I'm not saying this to puff up uh, anything that I did called whistleblowing, because I clearly don't put myself anywhere close to the standing of people like Snowden or Manning or looking back a little further, uh, Thomas Drake, John Kiriakou, uh, Daniel Ellsberg. And those, not all those names are familiar to your listeners. I would strongly encourage them to, yes. uh, to Google around a bit. Um, all of these folks, whistleblowers, um, put their names and, and selves right on the line and said, here I am, come after me if you want to. But this is more important than what happens to me. And not only am I passing on information, but I am bearing witness personally to something. On the leak side, um, in addition to the leaker choosing to remain anonymous, mm. I think we have to look carefully at motivation in order to make some, some careful judgments. The quickest one to dis dispose of are the unofficial slash official leaks. And... This is the case where an intelligence community official, in order to uh, discredit someone, leaks uh, information with the quiet approval of his or her boss. Right. Um, hey, mm. we've got a report on Bert Cohen. We're going to discredit his radio show by letting this uh, information quietly slide out of mm. the CIA into the hands of uh, uh, sympathetic journalist. And that's government action, it's government policy, and it does a disservice to the concept of, of conscientious leaking. Um, the second category that is very closely allied with that, and we're going to again dismiss it uh, very quickly, are, are the gossipy leakers. Yeah. And these are, <laughs> these are folks uh, who are low-level staffers and aides who may have heard something or overheard something or heard something third-person, um, who want to tell us that Trump chews on the ends of his pencils and uh, <laughs> this is going to, uh, you know, destroy democracy as, as we know it. Um, they just kind of want to enliven their own lives, mm -hmm. uh, get taken advantage of by journalists, um, and, and like I said, are basically just gossip. So pushing those folks aside, we're left with conscientious leakers. And I think in, the, in those cases, we need to salute uh, and applaud and, and, and celebrate those individuals who, for whatever reason, and I'm very sympathetic to, to the reasons, cannot do that publicly. Um, a whistleblower, by putting everything on the line, in fact, puts everything on the line, yes. uh, his or her job, freedom, etc. And not everyone is in a position to do that. Some people have cars and mortgages and student loans and, and families and oh, sick yeah. children and can't afford to see themselves thrown in jail or, or, or kicked out of their jobs and thus choose to, to leak anonymously. Mm. And I fully respect that and see it as a strong and act of conscience as Daniel Ellsberg standing up and saying, take me away in handcuffs if you want. This is important. 
Yeah, it's it's a very difficult situation. And one of the things, you know, if you look at Washington, there's a lot of people that work in Washington. I mean, I have <laughs> no idea how many employees there are at the White House, but I, I can't. I mean, there, there's, there are 11 million federal employees, not counting the military. 11 million? Well, yeah. that's more than it. So they must see things from time to time. And, I, you know, I can't help but think that most of them are dedicated public servants and their motivation for the work they do, as well as uh, whistleblowing on unpleasant truths, really is ethics. I mean, they could probably make more money elsewhere, but caring about the government actually serving the common good you know, it seems to me that that's largely what the EPA and, and, and lots of people are, are all about. So it seems like, you know, again, we're looking at when does one blow the whistle. I would think, tell me your reaction to this, that it's, mm-hmm. it, it's consistent with the work that they do a lot of the times. It's consistent with the work that they do, absolutely. But I think at the end of the day, it has to do with conscience, right. um, everyone has a line that they cannot, in, in good conscience, step across. Right. And when they reach that line, they have to decide what to do. Um, some people, either for lack of courage or under circumstances, and, and that is a very legitimate issue, um, as we said before, sick kids at home, what have you, sure. um, reach that line and, and realize that they have to learn to, to live with conscience and that they have violated it. Um, others may choose to quietly resign um, because they simply don't want the publicity or they don't feel that they can represent these issues uh, publicly or even anonymously. Some choose to work with journalists anonymously and others uh, choose to become public whistleblowers. But at the end of it all, it is that conscience, that Yes. little voice in your head that says this much. Um, there's a lot of other stuff going on there, but this one has pushed me beyond where I can realistically just continue with my job as business as usual, or, or worse, ignore what I, I've seen or, or seen others do. Yeah, that's that's got to be tough. I mean, in our national security state, ever since uh, September 11th, we're we're encouraged everywhere. If you see something, say something. Sure. It seems to me that is this also true for potential whistleblowers if they see wrongdoing, and and it's got to be a very very difficult position to be in. I mean, as a citizen, if you see something, say something. It's challenging enough because you can be challenged in court. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he said, she said, stuff like that, uh, and and to you know point the finger at someone. Uh, but is this, I wonder if there's like a disconnect between telling the public, if you see something, say something, and government employees. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of of factors in the mix. Um, I think to begin, there's that issue of consequences. And the more sensitive the information you're you're rolling with, uh, the larger the potential consequences. And and that's very much on, on people's minds. Another factor is certainly within the intelligence community, uh, there is a strong sense that everything gets cleaned up or taken care of in-house, that Mm. if you can't abide by that 
we'll call it a code, yeah. then you're, you're working in the wrong place. Hmm. Um, it is a, a system that, in some cases, has legitimate secrecy issues, and you, the individual, are not the one who makes those decisions. Right. I think a third factor that affects the decisions of, of many federal employees is the idea that you do work for federal government and, and the people, by extension, and not for or against any particular president. Uh-huh. And that you you have to very carefully judge whether your quote-unquote wrongdoing is a Trump policy that you personally don't care for versus something that truly violates conscience, law, or, or, or the Constitution. So, for example, leaking uh, a memo in draft can be, which has happened so many times in the last uh, couple of weeks, yeah. um, gets into some very gray areas uh, about whether you personally just don't care for a policy decision that's being legitimately made, um, or whether or not there is something much more significant going on that that doesn't just that that requires you. Let's use that word. Yeah. Requires you right. to inform the public. Well, I think about the the draft memo, and you're probably thinking about the same one. Uh, the draft memo of Trump's or. President Bannon, whoever it is, is the plan to <laughs> deputize the, you know, have like 100,000 National Guard to be a national police force rounding up immigrants. My sense is that by whoever uh, uh, let that information out there, it kind of had the effect of making that not happen. I yeah. happen to think that's a good thing. It, it can be. I, I, what I want to do is, is complicate this discussion. Oh, sure. Um, and I do that quite purposely because I, I'm trying, kind of almost in a, in a simulation fashion here, to, to duplicate some of the thought processes that whistleblowers and leakers go through. Um, things are rarely as clear as, as they seem yeah. in retrospect or, or from the outside. No, and so I hate the term devil's advocate, um, but it's that's, I, I prefer complicated. So, for example, to complicate things, there are, and, and I participated in this process, an enormous number of draft things ricocheting around inside uh-huh. the federal government at any given time. Um, bosses demand that. They'll call for, I want to see, you know, 10 different options on uh-huh. how to address this problem. Right. Um, and you and you, you know, Peter Van Buren, you sit down and you argue strenuously the case for option A. Uh, Bert Cohen, we're going to give you option B, and you argue that as if your life depended on it. Right. Um, and then somebody looks at all those those drafts and says, hmm, this one seems to be the best way. So uh, you want to be careful about saying what you saying anything about a, a draft because you don't know really where it fits in, in terms of things. Second, the idea that, again, it put a stop to something is an open question. Um, for example, in my case, uh, I wrote an entire book with footnotes, with references to government documents, with mm. quotes from many, many people about waste, fraud, and mismanagement in the reconstruction program of Iraq. And I accomplished precisely nothing in terms of concrete uh, changes to policy. Um, the exact same things that I 
raised uh, the question about in Iraq are still going on in Afghanistan in terms of waste and, and fraud. So the idea that you can cause change to happen by exposing something, um, be careful you don't give yourself too much credit on, on things like that. Maybe it was just a dumb idea. Maybe it was just a draft that was going to go nowhere anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you did have some effect. Sometimes it's hard to really tell, but it is, in the end, a lot more complicated, I think, than, than it looks from outside. Yeah, and uh, what one can't help but wonder, in this particular case, with, with the draft memo regarding you know national police force, basically, did that have a, a counterproductive effect of, of making the, uh, the White House clamp down even more, uh, you yep. know, and, and, and be less forthcoming. It, you know, th- there's always that action and, and reaction. And I do want to get into, you know, you tried inside. I think what I hear you saying is that's important to bring it up to the people who are uh, supposed to carry out the policy first and maybe then if they don't listen. And, you know, we have, there's a lot of military culture in America now. And in terms of foreign policy, especially in situations like you are in, secrecy is to be expected. And and there's a strict chain of command whereby orders come from the top down. And there's that old expression, ours is not to reason why, ours is just to do or die. Disrupting that chain of command is a big deal. What factors weigh in on decisions to blow the whistle in cases like that? That's got to be hard. It's one of those tough, tough, tough decisions, because after you cross that line and say, you know, this thing I saw or, or, or that I did was, was wrong, what am I going to do about it? And I want to make sure it's clear that I am not recommending going through the, the interior channels, uh, per se. Huh. Um, that, that's a decision that each whistleblower is going to have to make on his or her own, because sometimes going through channels actually allows the system to shut you down. Ah. Um, the case of Thomas Drake, who tried to blow the whistle, I mean, essentially had about 90% of what Edward Snowden eventually released, had that in front of people um, a couple of months after 9-11. Um, he was shut down by the system. He tried going through internal channels at the NSA and was uh, persecuted, prosecuted. He tried to go to Congress they use that information against him. The system itself destroyed him and, and prevented the information he had uh, coming out years before Snowden uh, did. Hmm. So you've got to make a very tight decision. The other side of the house is that who is in a better decision to actually fix something than the people whose job it is to work with that issue every day? You would think. Um, in my case, uh, I went to my boss and my boss's boss in Iraq and they had the authority in many cases, at least on the local level, to fix the things that I felt were, were broken. Um, had they agreed with me, we could have changed the way this worked out. I could have written a book talking about, for example, how we, hopefully, how we succeeded in our area where other parts of the program failed elsewhere in Iraq. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, once back to my favorite word for today's conversation, it's pretty complicated um, looking at whether to go through channels, which channels to go through, um, who can you trust, when you have to go all the way around the system in order to find someone, for example, a journalist, uh, in the case of Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. that you can trust. 
Wow. Yeah, it's it's important for democracy, no doubt about it. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Peter Van Buren, former United States Foreign Service employee who uh, wrote the book, We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the <laughs> Iraqi People. What a great title. We're talking about when to blow the whistle. And the whole, you know, th- there's a lot of complicating factors in there. And and you blew the whistle because, see if I got this right, uh, you saw mismanagement, waste of resources that were going on in Iraq. couple questions. What kind of risk was there for you? What happened to you? And after you, uh, you did this, uh, you asked one of the security officers why they were bothering with you. Yeah. I wonder if you could address those questions. First, I have to confess that I was remarkably naive. Remember, uh, this was, I was acting before I knew about Tom Drake. Mm-hmm. Um, I was acting before I understood what Chelsea Manning was up to. Hmm. I was acting before there was Ed Snowden. The, the whole thing with WikiLeaks was just starting to become publicly known. I, I had very wow. few uh, good examples to, to draw from. And my naivety uh, proved almost fatal <laughs> in, in uh, to me. Um, wow. And so anybody today it has the benefit of seeing all those things. In fact, Edward Snowden has mentioned more than once that his decisions on how to handle his disclosures were, were very much informed by what happened to, to Chelsea Manning. So I, I was naive. I thought, you know, I didn't think the State Department would uh, promote me for what I did, but I kind of expected to get into, you know, some trouble. Uh, at that time, one of the worst things that could happen generally inside the State Department was a good spanking and maybe a 10-day suspension. Um, and that, that's kind of what I, I had mostly expected. I didn't think it was going to be career-enhancing, ha- but I didn't expect it to be uh, career-ending you know, career uh, either. Right. The thing about the security guys was was an insight that, again, in my naivety, I only learned at the very end of uh, of my struggle. Um, by the time this event, this this interaction with security occurred, pretty much everybody had figured out what was going to happen to me, which is I was going to be pushed into uh, an early retirement and forgotten as a, as an individual. Mm. And I really said to the the, the guy, I said. Seriously, why are you people doing this to me at this point? I mean, the, the game is over. You know what's going to happen to me. I know what's going to happen to me. So, you know, what is your problem, basically? Um, and, you know, he was very frank. that This is no longer about you. You're done. Um, what this is about is shutting down the man or woman who right now is trying to decide whether to blow the whistle themselves. Um, basically, they wanted my head on a stick in the lobby, the same way that the Trump White House is looking for leakers right now, not only to get rid of the individual who may or may not matter, but much more importantly, as an example to the next guy, to say, if you're considering this, here's some food for thought, because there's a bloody head out in the lobby that could be you. Mm. Um, And that's a very powerful uh, weapon that government can swing against someone who has the option of doing nothing. And you weren't necessarily against the policy. You you saw waste, uh, and it was making the policy not work. It it was not winning the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. So 
I, I got to ask, just I know you have to take off here. You write that, quote, if the government acted as the founders believed it should, we would not be here. Could you explain that, please? I think that's really well, sure. Tough. I'm speaking very broadly in that sentence, but it works broadly or it works narrowly. If the government doesn't do things wrong, if the government doesn't violate uh, the law, the Constitution, if the government doesn't press against conscience, then there's nothing to blow the whistle on. If, if the government does what it's supposed to do, to act ethically, to act in the best interests of the people, to be transparent, to actually put itself beyond party, beyond politics, beyond anything except serving the United States and its people, there's absolutely nothing for whistleblowers to do. We would be out of business the same afternoon, and I don't think there's a whistleblower out there now or considering it that doesn't wish it was that way. We hope one day we have a government that doesn't require whistleblowers, and that does hew very, very closely to the ideals that we talk about in America that sadly, particularly these days, seem to fall very, very short of. Yeah, and democracy, people who know, who are involved in carrying out the policy as you were, you know, it'd be nice if they could have some way to input it and say, hey, you know, this isn't working, try this. You know, I mean, it's really, you know, it's, it, it's you know, democracy and having government that's actually serving the common good seems like a good thing. Fascinating stuff. If people want to follow your work and perhaps get in touch, uh, there must be some website to which you can point them. Absolutely. It's called WeMentWell.com. Yeah. And uh, I'm on Twitter at, as WeMentWell. And uh, I, I write uh, all the time. Uh, articles that I write for other places uh, also appear on the blog or on Twitter. And I would encourage people to, to take a look because I am trying very, very hard to keep focused on the core values of, of free speech, of responsible government, and trying to push past what, might, what I might consider temporary issues to focus on the bedrock of what we are as a country and who we are as a people, the things that the Founding Fathers espoused, and the closer we get to those, the more secure and, and, and better a place the United States will be. You are very dangerous, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out. Thank you so much, Peter Van Buren. Really appreciate that. Thanks for being with us on this part of Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, now we're going to look at some other truth-telling uh, that uh, you know, people in government didn't want us to see about telling the truth with regard to realities in Vietnam. Ow. Right after this short break.
Tell the truth. Yes, that's what we are talking about today. The truth, the ugly truth of what seems to have happened in Vietnam. There's a uh, big blockbuster of a, of a new book called Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. And our guest today is the author of that book, Nick Terse, who is an investigative journalist and managing editor at TomDispatch.com. Uh, Nick Terse, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Well, Vanity Fair calls this new book, Kill Anything That Moves, Explosive and groundbreaking reporting. Jonathan Schell, author of The Real War, says, In Kill Anything That Moves, Nick Terse, in a tour de force of reporting and research, has for the first time put together a comprehensive portrait written with dignity and skill of what American forces actually were doing in Vietnam. Terse discovers that episodes that were considered to be isolated atrocities, episodes of devastation, massacre, rape, torture, were in fact the norm composing one continuous atrocity unfolding year after year throughout that country. And those of us who were out on the streets back then protesting the war in Vietnam just had, we were speculating that things such as mass rape, torture, mutilation, and slaughter of Vietnamese civilians were not at all aberrations, but may in fact have been the results of an official American policy which, as you say, Nick Turris, rather, they were the inevitable outcome of deliberate policies dictated at the highest levels of the military. This book talks of a letter from, well, I want to talk about that letter from a concerned sergeant. And, you know, most of us who were around during the war in Vietnam, and Nick Turris, you were not. Uh, you, I believe, didn't get born until 1975 after the war ended. But those of us who were on that, we remember the My Lai Massacre, for which Lieutenant Callie was convicted. Uh, and I, I, it, it appeared at the time, a lot of us had questions, was he a fall guy? Was this, you know, th that it was pictured at the time, the My Lai Massacre, as something isolated, a rare case of bad apples? Uh, but... You bring forth uh, in your tremendous research, going through boxes and boxes of uh, information, letters, documents, that uh, one of the things that you found was a letter from a concerned sergeant, that's how he signed it, who begged the military to take action regarding something far bigger. He called it Operation Speedy Express. Well, he didn't call it. That's what it was called, uh, which was commanded by General Julian Ewell. Any guess as to how many civ Vietnamese civilians died under Ewell's command? You know, we just want to see how much of an aberration things like My Lai were. What about this Operation Speedy Express? What did you find? Well, uh, you know, I, I found that this, this whistleblower said that, um, you know, he wrote to the, the Army brass. He'd, he'd served during Speedy Express, and he said that it amounted to a My Lai a month. And... You know, he, he informed the, the top brass about this. He told them that, uh, that he didn't want to have to go to the press or go to Congress. He was hoping that the Army would take care of this. Uh, and, and his idea of, of a meal a month, uh, when, when you look at, you know, what uh, the, the, the totals that, that Speedy Express, uh, the, the, the body count, this is, um, this is what, what General Ewell uh, was focused on. Uh, you can see there's a tremendous disparity. The, the Ewell's troops claim they killed 11,000 Vietnamese guerrillas, uh, but 
they were only uh, they only collected 748 weapons uh, from from these supposedly armed guerrillas. Hmm. Uh, a couple of Newsweek reporters looked into uh, uh, this this uh, Operation Speedy Express a few years later, and they estimated that around uh, up to 5,000 civilians had been killed during the operation. Uh, what I found when I looked at the the Pentagon's archives uh, was the fact that um, you know, the the military was afraid of the story coming out, so they did their own study of Operation Speedy Express, and they figured out that, uh, that the Newsweek estimate was probably on the low end. They said up to seven thousand civilians were killed during Speedy Express, so seven thousand of eleven thousand. We're talking about something you know well over ten times the size of Milai. Um, I mean, this is just a, a tremendous amount of civilian killing. But, uh, but this story was, was suppressed by the Pentagon. Uh, the whistleblowers' uh, uh, claims were, were never known to the, the Newsweek reporters at the time. Uh, and the, the Pentagon tamped this down, and it, you know, it, it, it took decades for us to know the real truth. Wow, it's, it certainly has. And, and what has, uh, I believe, uh, General Julian Ewell has uh, passed away. Did he ever face any kind of justice for this? He didn't actually. Ewell was was greatly rewarded after Speedy Express. It was it was seen as a as a major military success. Uh, he was promoted from commanding just one division to something called Two Field Force Vietnam, which was the largest combat command in the world at the time. Uh, and from there, he was promoted up to be the official military attaché to the uh, Paris Peace Conference. He was probably the uh, you know the the, the general. Uh, you know, least suited to, to being at the peace table, but uh, but he was seen as, as such a success that uh, that he rapidly rose through the ranks, and uh, and the military even called upon him uh, in the in the wake of the war to write uh, you know a, a, a manual about his methods in the Delta uh, so that uh, it could be used in in future conflicts. Oh my, we are talking with Nick Terse, author of the uh, explosive new book. Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. Now, America's leadership in the world and our sense as citizens of patriotism and trust in the government, uh, we were kind of upset when returning soldiers were called by some baby killers. Uh, that, was, that was a hard thing for, for Americans to experience because these, these people who are coming back, they were our fathers, our sons, our brothers. What was it? that had good people, ordinary American servicemen, go against their sense of ethics and commit what we now think of as uh, atrocities? Were they, even though many did kill innocent civilians, could they be said to be victims as well? Well, I, I, I think, uh, you know, and, and I try to lay that, this out in the book, I, I think you really need to, to take a nuanced view uh, when you're talking about uh, American infantrymen in Vietnam, uh, these are generally 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Uh, you know, they're, they're a little more than, than American boys. We're put in um, you know, an extremely challenging environment, uh, often put in untenable situations. And um, you know, they were given very little training on how to uh, fight a, a guerrilla war amongst the population. And there were... You know, I, I talk in the book about... Uh, but one, one veteran that I talked to uh, called the incentivization of death, uh, all these incentives that soldiers were given uh, to produce a body count. Uh, I, I mentioned that, that Julian Ewell was, was rather notorious for this, but this was a mm -hmm. uh, standard throughout Vietnam. The war was, was run 
uh, on an attrition strategy, which meant that you had to kill, uh, you know, uh, more Vietnamese than they could end up putting into the field. They were always chasing this elusive crossover point. And the only metric that the, the U.S. military had to show that it was winning the war was producing a body count. And troops were, uh, they were under a great deal of pressure to produce bodies. And their commanders, uh, they learned very quickly, weren't very discerning about what bodies were turned in. That's why in, in Ewell's case, you could have 11,000 killed, but only turn in 748 weapons. Right. Uh, there weren't a lot of questions asked. But there was a tremendous amount of pressure on the infantrymen in the field. If you didn't turn in a Vietnamese body, if you didn't have a body count, you were apt to be left out in the field longer. You were courting exhaustion, uh, you know, uh, injury, and and possibly death. Uh, and uh, you know, this this pressure that was put on the troops, uh, you know, this this uh, stick was then also uh, augmented by carrots. Uh, these these troops were. Uh, there were all sorts of uh, incentives given out for producing Vietnamese bodies. Uh, a three-day pass to a, a beach resort in the country to get out of the field. Mm. Uh, extra beer rations, uh, better food, uh, non-regulation gear that you could wear, light duty at base camp. Uh, all these things, and, and a lot of the veterans that I talked to said this really messed with their value system. I bet. Uh, and on top of this, a lot of them talked about... Um, you know, a, a pervasive racism that they were also exposed to. Uh, that uh, there was there was an acronym used in Vietnam called the MGR, or the Mir Gook Rule. Yeah. And the idea was that the Vietnamese weren't uh, real people. They were subhuman, mere gooks who could be uh, abused or, or even killed at will. And veterans told me about, uh, you know, from the moment they got to boot camp, uh, from the beginning of their basic training, they were told, you never call them Vietnamese. You call them gooks, dinks, plants, slopes, anything to take away their humanity, anything to make it easier to kill Vietnamese. And I think about men my age who have gone through PTSD and readjustment to uh, coming back to the United States after not only they've seen this stuff but been involved in this stuff and how there's no official outlet for the the, the the pain and the suffering that they felt by being required to go through this and, you know, taking it on themselves and turning inward. Oftentimes, suicides happen. Uh, you know, there's no, you know, if they could, I've often wondered that, that if they could blame and point the finger directly at those who were to blame, who set up this policy, how much healthier these then young men would be uh, now, you know, well into their 60s and, and 70s. What was it like? It must have, I mean, you, your research went deep into to boxes of documents, but also obviously involved speaking with many Vietnam veterans. What was that like? Were they eager to tell these stories or, or was it, there was a lot of uh, different attitudes on, on getting at this really harsh truth? Well, I mean, it, it was all across the spectrum. I mean, there were, uh, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd call and, and, and be hung up on or, or knock on a door, uh -huh. and uh, it'd be slammed shut in my face. But most of the time, uh, you know, once I, I demonstrated that I had uh, some knowledge of the war, uh, that I, I knew something of, of what their service was like, uh, you know, veterans, uh, even those predisposed not to talk, would uh, would open up. You know, there were some who were unrepentant, there was uh, mm -hmm. one veteran that I got in touch with who uh, 
I, I knew from records, had, had confessed to carrying out acts of, of torture against Vietnamese detainees and, and prisoners. And when I asked him about this, he, um, you know, he told me that uh, he thought it was right. It was, uh, you know, contributed to the, the, the war effort, the right thing to do. And if he was in a Vietnam-type situation again, he would do the exact same thing. He didn't see anything wrong with it. And then there were other veterans who, um, you know, had a, had a very different, uh, had grappled with their experience very differently. There was one veteran that I, I always, uh, he always comes to mind. You know, I, I talked to him for, for many hours, and he was very jovial. He had an infectious laugh. And, uh, but, but he quieted down, and he said he wanted to tell me a, a story about a, a, a member of his unit. And he told me about one time going into a village, and they were burning it down, which was standard operating procedure. Right, right. This is how the U.S. military tried to, to break the, the ties between the uh, guerrillas and the, uh, the, the rural villagers. Pacification. Burn their villages down. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he said that uh, this GI had, had set fire to one of the, the homes, and then a woman ran out, and she was grabbing him on the arm and, and screaming at him, obviously because her, her home and all her possessions were going up in flames. And he said that the, this GI just pushed her off and then took the butt of his rifle and hit her squarely in the face, broke her nose, there was blood everywhere, she was screaming, and he said that the, the GI just turned around and, and walked away laughing. And then he, he paused for a moment and he said, you know that the GI I was telling you about was me. And, you know, it, it really gave me pause. It was, um, it was hard to connect up the man that I was talking to, to his 19-year-old self. And he told me that, that he had the same problems. He said at the time, you know, he didn't think anything of it, of breaking her nose, of laughing about it. But in the time since, you know, that episode and, and other things that he had done in Vietnam had haunted him, and that he just, um, it, was, it was something that, uh, that he dealt with on a, on a regular basis. Uh, you know, something that he didn't think anything of at the time, but, but now, you know, couldn't help but think about. And, and you know, this stayed with him for, for all these decades. It was something that, uh, that he was still grappling with, and I'm sure he is uh, to this day. And I, he was victimized. I mean, it sounds like, you know, this wasn't his idea. He was, that's not how he was brought up, obviously. And none of these, I, I imagine very, very few of these people were brought up that way. But it was, uh, you know, they had no choice. And, and I would think, again, if the higher-ups perhaps had been held accountable, people like Lyndon Johnson, like Henry Kissinger, uh, you know, the they, they, uh, military uh, planners, uh, Melvin Laird, and uh, the other people there, then maybe their consciences could have been a little bit clearer, realizing that, that you know, they didn't, it wasn't their idea to become these monsters. Uh, and I remember, again, being of that age, uh, that there was very little awareness in 1971 of the brave, really brave Vietnam veterans who held the Winter Soldier investigation a lot of Americans, I mean, it was really quashed. Very few people even heard about that. Some people felt that even to raise the issue of American war crimes was unpatriotic, if not treasonous. What can you say about those men who participated in that effort to reveal the truth about atrocities they'd seen or participated in? Well, uh, you know, there, there's one particular winter soldier that I, I focus on in, in, the, in my book in a, to a great extent, uh, and I, I think his story kind of, uh, you know, typifies, uh, you know, the, the, the ways in which, um, you know, the, uh, these, these atrocity stories, uh, you know, it could have gotten out, but, but didn't. Uh, his name was Jamie Henry, and he was, um, 
you know, before the war, he was a, a self-described hippie living in uh, San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district. But he was drafted, and he became a medic, and uh, and a very good one. He saved a lot of American lives, uh, and he was lauded by the troops he served with in Vietnam. But he was also extremely shocked by what he saw. He told me that on his first day in the field, he watched uh, the point man, the lead man of his patrol, molest a young girl. And, uh, and he thought to himself, you know, my God, what, what's going on here? And over the ensuing months, he watched a litany of atrocities take place. A young boy who was executed for no reason, an old man who was used for target practice, a prisoner thrown off a cliff, a man held down to be run over by an armored personnel carrier, basically a small tank. Uh, and when he spoke up about this brutality in Vietnam, his life was threatened. Mm. So he, he kept his mouth shut, but he kept his eyes open and kept cataloging everything he saw, including on, uh, it was February 8th, 1968, uh, when his commanding officer issued an order to kill anything that moves. And Jamie witnessed the massacre of, of close to 20 women and children in a small village. And Jamie told me that 30 seconds after that massacre, he vowed to blow the whistle on it. And he came home, and he reported it to an Army lawyer. Mm-hmm. But this man told him to, to keep quiet. He said that there were a million ways the Army could make him disappear. He went to an Army criminal investigator, but that man threatened him. Uh, and, but he kept at it. He, uh, he went to, to public forums and spoke out. He went on the radio, and he went to Winter Soldier, and he told this story just again and again. But he could never get any kind of traction. And uh, you know there were there were some specific reasons for it, including the fact that uh, the Nixon administration uh, put out the word that these men were fake veterans and that they were liars. Right. Uh, and and this the stigma has always stayed with the with the Winter Soldiers, and it was brought up during um, John Kerry's uh, 2004 uh, you know White House run. Right. Uh, and and you know men like Jamie, after years of trying to get the story out, he finally just gave up. He felt he had to mm. go on with his life. And it wasn't until I showed up on his doorstep, you know, decades later with a phone book-sized stack of documents that he knew that the Army had conducted a thorough investigation and corroborated everything he'd said. But, of course, um, you know, it was 40 years too late. And I just think psychologically it must be so much healthier and start the healing to get this stuff out, to know that these individual young 18-, 19-year-old soldiers uh, it, it wasn't their idea that they they were victimized as well. And to turn inward, it's got to be so, so awful. Uh, again, we're talking with Nick Terse, author of the new book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. How high up do you think the atrocities were known? Or, or was it even beyond that just simply policy? Well, that's what I really try and, and, and show in the book. You know, I... I I use uh, records uh, to, of, of massacres and murders to, to punctuate this, but um, you know what, what I really try and tell in the book is, is a story of what I came to see as a signature aspect of the conflict, and that's Vietnamese civilian suffering. You know, millions of Vietnamese were killed or wounded or made refugees by deliberate U.S. policies. Uh, you know that that were uh, uh, promulgated at the, the highest levels of the government. You know, there, there's only so much killing that I a squad or, or a platoon or a company can do, that uh, most Vietnamese were killed by unrestrained bombing and, and artillery shelling across wide swaths of the countryside. So that's deliberate policies dictated the highest levels of the U.S. military and known at the highest levels of the government. I mean, it was impossible for, uh, for the, the Pentagon and the White House not to know what was going on. 
and uh, not to know what their their policies were uh, had made inevitable. I wonder how the history of America, the future, might be affected if we really faced the truth of what our war in Vietnam uh, had had done. I wonder what good it might do us. And uh, just part of that is we have now on trial for his life, Private Bradley Manning, for intentionally leaking the truth about what he learned about our atrocities uh, in Iraq. What, what about this telling the truth? He thought he was doing a good thing. I, I can't help but think that by your work, uh, it must have been terribly emotionally draining. I, ca- I cannot imagine. I mean, I was on the streets during the war in Vietnam protesting it. You looked really into it. What would be the benefit of us really facing the truth, facing history, facing ourselves? Well, you know, I, I think that since America is is now constantly involved in military conflicts abroad in uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, I think it's important that Americans uh, understand what war is really like, uh, especially for the people who live with war every day, and that's civilians. You know, wars cause immense suffering, but the the stories of civilians affected by America's wars rarely make the front pages of the newspaper or lead the nightly news. And I think that if Americans are called upon to send their brothers and sisters and sons and daughters to war, they ought to have a clear idea uh, of what that means for the sons and daughters of people overseas. So I hope that uh, that Kelly Singham Moose can contribute to that uh, that conversation. And I think of the healing process that's begun and actually in Guatemala, of all places, where an awful lot of people carried out massacres, but now the leader is on trial for crimes against humanity. And I got to think that's got to be uh, very, very uh, healing that is going on. The book is called Kill Anything That Moves, an amazing project, gotten rave reviews, uh, called an explosive groundbreaking book. The author, Nick Terse, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. Thank you so much, and uh, let's hope we can really learn from history. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Bert. Here comes the helicopter Second time today Everybody scatters And hopes it goes away How many kids they've murdered Only God can say
Every voice 